Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is Andre from Mental Health, and I'm here with Sumitra. Um, Sumitra, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm, I'm, uh, my name is Sumitra Pathare. I'm a psychiatrist by training. Uh, and since this is UK, long time ago, I worked in the UK for almost 10 years, from 91 to 99, uh, in St. Thomas's in uh, London with uh, Tom Craig and his team. Uh, and then I've been subsequently back in India, we do a lot of innovative projects around policy, services, and, and also around legislation. Uh, and I, I'm the director of the Center for Mental Health Law and Policy, which is based in Pune in India, which is Pune, by Indian standards, is a small city with just 6 million people, which I know is a huge city in other parts of the world, but not in India. And it's close to Mumbai, which most people know where it is. And your net shrink on Twitter. You're yes. one of the very few keynote speakers here at this conference who has a Twitter account. So for that, I thank you. <laughs> thank you. I, I quite enjoy following Mental Health on Twitter. That's, that's quite, oh, thank you. I learned thank quite you. a bit about how to use Twitter effectively. I still don't do it very well. I wish I could do better. We're all learning. So, so I wanted to start by, by asking you, rather, um, what does mental health recovery mean to you? I think mental health recovery means to me is is what it means to people. Okay, your recovery is what it means to you more than what it means to me, uh, and so it is a personal notion of recovery. It's about when you feel you're well. I mean, just to use an example, which is not from the mental health space, uh, but I have diabetes, uh, and everyone. I mean, I'm quite open. I openly talk about the fact that I have diabetes. So when do I say I've recovered from diabetes? It really means when I've recovered from diabetes. I continue to take medicines. I continue to have diabetes. I live a full life. I come to this conference. I do my work. But yes, I live with diabetes. And so if somebody asks me, am I ill with diabetes? I'm not. I'm I mean, if I can use the word recovered, you know, if, if I, my idea of recovery is that I need to take care of my health, I need to take my medicines, I need to do other things with my diet, I need to do, maybe I need to adjust my work, my schedule, all of those things. I think all of that goes into recovery. It's much broader than just saying, oh, have I got any symptoms of diabetes or not? You know. So I, I would just use that as an analogy to try and make people understand that recovery is not just the absence of of an illness, but about living with illness and living a fulfilling life, really. And for people who don't know much about India and Gujarat and Pune, tell us a bit about the scale of mental health issues in that part of the world. Um, okay, India is a huge country in terms of population. You know, Indians make up one-sixth of humanity. Uh, so one out of every six persons in this world is an Indian. Uh, we have a population of 1,200 million which is 1.2 billion at last count. Uh, and we had a national mental health survey recently, which was very well done, which found that uh, the scale of mental health problems was that around 10.5% of the population was affected with some identifiable mental illness. Not mental health problem, but mental illness. And so they estimated about 150 million people in the country had a mental health problem, uh, a mental illness, either a common mental disorder like depression or anxiety or severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, alcohol, drug abuse. Uh, so 150 million people is close to, I think the population of entire Europe is about 200 million. Uh, so that's, that's to give you an idea of the scale. Um, and it's uh, and and what do we have in terms of services? We have a you know a lot of a, a huge lack of services. Uh, the survey also estimated a treatment gap 
as in how many people need treatment and go, don't get it and they estimate around 85 to 90 percent of people do not receive any treatment uh, for their mental illness. Uh, we have a shortage of mental health human resources. Uh, we also have a shortage of uh, funding for mental health. Uh, so the, the amount of money that the government spends on mental health is very low. Uh, we also don't have fully state-provided mental health care. So generally in healthcare, for every five dollars that are spent in healthcare, government spends only a dollar or so, and the remaining four dollars are really spent out of pocket. Uh, so either through private insurance, which is small, employer insurance, which some people get, but largely out-of-pocket expenses for people who pay as they go. Um, so that creates a whole host of problems, especially for mental illnesses. And you've been involved a lot in the WHA Quality Rights Programme in Gujarat, so that's kind of public mental health facilities. Tell us a bit about that and how that's worked. Well, we, we were, the, the Quality Rights Programme worked with, uh, with uh, the government of Gujarat, so we we implemented the quality rights interventions in six mental health facilities which are run by the government of Gujarat. And so this was a collaborative effort with the government. Uh, and uh, these six facilities, uh, these six, six facilities uh, reach out to or actually serve about 50,000 people with mental illness every year, 50,000 individuals with mental illnesses every year. Uh, not visits. So that's a huge number of people who access these services. And so we implemented the interventions in uh, these six facilities. Uh, and one of the interventions uh, was uh, setting up peer support uh, in these facilities, including uh, having peer support volunteers working in these facilities, which, which is the first time anything like that has been done in India. Um, so initially we had around 25 people who we supported as peer support workers who were trained and provided with mentoring and support uh, in these facilities and they were funded through the pro project which was uh, a funded project. But when the project ended, the uh, government of Gujarat took over the funding and so at the end of the project the peer support workers continue to work in these facilities and are uh, paid a small honorarium and supported by the government of Gujarat. Uh, so that was a great, uh, great thing to kind of institutionalize the fact that it's not just a project-related thing but has now become part of routine services. And I guess mental health peer support workers are, are kind of well-established now in high-income yes. countries. It seems like a, a bit of a no-brainer to have peer support workers in low-income low countries, middle-income countries... Um, to do, you know, to, to address this issue of staffing that you've mentioned. What are the barriers to kind of getting it actually implemented in places like India? Oh, there's a whole set of barriers. I, I think the first barrier is, I think, uh, you know, I think there's also an ethical issue around this, that are we going to use peer support as a way of filling in service gaps? And if you're going to do that, then should peer support workers be treated as health workers and paid an equivalent salary because they are filling in a service gap? Uh, but if you do that, then how is that different from a health service anyway? And how does that remain peer support, which is supposed to be out of the health service in some f shape or form? Uh, so that's a real issue, and, and I don't think we have a right answer. I, you, know, you could argue it both ways. You could argue that they should be paid, and you could equally argue they shouldn't be paid. 
uh, and that they are not health service provision, but they are uh, in addition to the health service provision. So I think that's a challenge. The second challenge is, uh, is the notion of recovery as understood in many high-income countries is not the notion of recovery that is understood in many low- and middle-income countries. So in my country, if you spoke to professionals what they mean by recovery, then they would very often answer in the kind of conventional, traditional understanding of recovery, which is a symptomatic recovery, which means your symptoms are better and you're, you're well, you're not ill anymore. Uh, now, that's not the notion of recovery that peer support and the recovery models that we talk about have currently. Uh, so getting people to change their frame of reference of what they understand by recovery is another challenge. Uh, and that's a training challenge. That's about how mental health professionals are trained and what they learn during their training. Um, so that's the second challenge. The third challenge is the lack of policy support. Uh, the mental health policies and legislations don't necessarily recognize peer support as a valid form of intervention. And so there's very little appetite for policymakers to then invest in these services because it's not something that the policy has identified as a place for intervention. Uh, and the final challenge, really, final two challenges, if I can say. One is uh, we are a very hierarchical society. Uh, so there is this notion of a doctor-patient relationship where uh, the doctor is the active giver of something and as a patient you're the passive recipient of care. Um, and in that hierarchical society, peer support does not then fit very easily uh, because it doesn't fit into these notions, you know, the notions of an expert who provides the service and you're the passive recipient of a service because you're somebody who lives with mental illness. Uh, and peer support doesn't fit into that very well, so it's difficult to get mental health services to then understand the value of peer support. Uh, and the second important issue is that uh, we also have, you know, we don't have a good social security net in India. So social security in India is really what your family will provide. Your family is the social security net uh, because there isn't a publicly funded state-provided social security net. Uh, and so a lot of practical support uh, as well as emotional support is provided by families. And then how is that different from what peer support is? And do, does peer support then have added value which is not being provided by families? Uh, and how do people view that and whether they find value in peer support apart from getting that support from their families? Uh, so I think that's another challenge. We've never really addressed that or answered that question, and we don't know how that will work out because we frequently hear people saying that, well, I get a lot of support from my family. I don't really need anything additionally available. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are some of the issues that I think we need to think about when we try and develop a more homegrown model of peer support. Uh, you know, while you take the principles and the ideas you actually need a much more bottom-up, homegrown approach which is relevant to the cultural and lived realities of the place you're working in. And I think we need to develop those models. We don't have those models at the moment.